Take your Bibles and uh, turn to the Psalms, Psalm number 16, Psalm 16. We're in our series and we're going to continue our series in the Psalms. We covered Psalm 1 and 2, and so we're in book 1. So, so the way that this series will go is we will not cover each and every psalm, but what we're doing is we're going to cover select psalms from every single book. Um, that is how the, uh, the psalms are organized. Uh, that's how they're put together are in these sections, five books. So we'll, we will cover select psalms through the five books Um, The idea is that that will lead into a series in the book of Hebrews. That is actually the structure of the book of Hebrews, right? So written in the New Testament, though, written to a Jewish audience, the very structure of the book of Hebrews is based on Psalm 110. And so we will cover Psalm 110, and we'll come back to it. The book of Hebrews is one of the books that refers to the Psalms um, most often um, in, in the New Testament. So it is one of the ones that actually references the Psalms most often in the New Testament. One of my goals is for you to see how the Psalms and the New Testament fit together. Sometimes we think that the Old Testament is just, you know, let's like, oh, hey, we're in the Old Testament. You know, let's just blow some dust off of this. And somehow we have to make it relevant um, we, because the New Testament, that's very relevant. And even then, sometimes, oh, that's just hard to make relevant because we're modern people. But what we find is that this, the Psalms, the Old Testament, is incredibly relevant. And we don't have to make it relevant. This is God's word. Uh, this is God's word to us. God's ways are higher than our ways. He knows us through and through. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible. I think you'll see that today in Psalm 16, is that what what Martin Luther was saying is that if you only had one book, um, if you only had one book that would tell about the entire Bible, which book would it be? For Martin Luther, he said it was the Psalms. It was the Psalms. And as you go through the, the history of the church, you will find that the Psalms are so pivotal, so important. Um, <clears throat> in fact, Psalm 14 um, was um, pivotal to some French Christians, the Huguenots. Um, During times of persecution, um, this was their theme. Uh, They rallied around together, even at the cost of their life, um, around Psalm 14. That was the, the battle cry of the French Huguenots in persecution. Um, So we're very close to um, that place. um, Psalm 16 is a psalm of refuge. It's a psalm of refuge. I don't know what you came to church with in your mind. Maybe your mind's full. Maybe um, you're here and you're wondering, okay, what is today going to, to be about well, the world is um, full of crisis. Now, I don't like to start a sermon this way and, and start on a negative tone, but I think it's, you know, it's the reality, right? It's when we look out um, at life, 
right? We see crisis on all kinds of different levels. And we've prayed with people recently who have had um, substantial and very difficult health diagnosis, right? The, the last enemy is a real enemy. We have wept with people who have lost loved ones even this week. We look around the world and we see um, a crisis. Um, we see um, what we looked at last week. Why do the nations rage? And we continue to see that kind of battle. Um, it is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. You know, we, we are in a spiritual battle. We are in the midst of that place. We certainly know of that um, in the United States. Um, there is a, a, a definite spiritual battle. Um, the state of the church is a bit ragged. Attendance has declined more than 40% in the average church in America. Um, people have moved from being three-time attenders to one-time attenders. Um, there are those that are giving up their faith altogether and just simply walking away. Um, perhaps they never were Christians. We don't know. <clears throat> it's not just people in the pews. Barna said that per capita, there are more job openings with the church in the church than there have ever been in the Church of America in all of its history. So certainly, um, if we look on the surface of that, there's there's a, a crisis. We can say, well, you know, what is what's underneath that? I don't know exactly, um, but but these are nonetheless the the trends that are in the church today. Now that's a negative, certainly negative, but we look at, um, we look at the Psalms and we, we look at how the New Testament uses the Psalms and in deep moments of crisis, Christians refer to the Psalms and they refer there to hope, great hope. You know, you might say, well, I've, I've come in, you've already just kind of spoiled my day. You know, I'm in a really good place. Life is good. The weather's good. Um, you know, it's, it's the last bit of summer. We really get to enjoy that. I, I really didn't come to hear that kind of negativity. You know, as I, um, when I was youth pastor, uh, Pastor George Kuhn oftentimes would say, you know, you need to prepare for the day, to stand in the day. He's so right about that. Um, I, I know that in speaking to individuals, you, you tend to meet two kinds of people, and they're on a continuum, but I'll put them in two categories. You know, as you speak to people as a pastor, people who are going through difficulty and crisis, you know, either they have this warehouse that is filled with Scripture to, in which to draw upon, or what you find is a person who's rather empty. And it's really difficult to help that person who is rather empty, right? Because they have let the good days go by without having placed inside that warehouse the knowledge of God's word, right? That, that's where the blessed man is the one who does what? Meditates on the word of God, focuses on the word of God, ruminates 
on the word of God. In fact, that is one of the keys to understanding how the Psalms all fit together. Um, when you look at this book, um, a, a rather immature or cursory look, an introductory look says, well, it's just simply different songs or chapters and they don't necessarily hang together. You'll see that they do thematically. Um, they were organized in a, a particular way, and they are organized thematically. Um, as we've been challenged in our small group to remember, um, the, one of the, the ideas that we study in Scripture is the context. What comes before and what comes after? Um, such is the case here in Psalm 16. Uh, for we can't rightly understand Psalm 16 unless we understand the theme in Psalm 15. We really can't understand Psalm 1 unless we understand Psalm 1 and 2. They hang together. So Psalm 1 is law, right? Psalm 2 is gospel, right? In both of those, there's a lot of bad news, but yet that, that bad news is turned to good when we turn to God. And that's what we intend to do today through the word of God. So let me read to you Psalm 15 before we get into Psalm 16 so we know, the, we know the context. Follow along in the scriptures. And let me say this at the beginning. I, I, I was, was thinking about this, um, but even as I prepared, um, it, it just became confusing to me. Um, but I will encourage you um, to do something is to get a copy of the King James Bible um, and read the Psalms in the King James uh, the reason is the Elizabethan English captures the poetry far better than any other translation. So perhaps if you have a stack of Bibles around your house, you probably have a King James. Um, and that is the best version to read from the Psalms. So if you want to meditate on the Psalms, um, that's a great version. But I will continue to preach out of the ESV um, even though it is um, subpar to the, the language of the King James. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not, pu pu um, who does not put his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15. If you look at the top and the tail, the beginning and the end, you'll discover what Psalm 15 is about. It's a psalm of integrity. The question is being asked at the beginning, who can come into the tent of the Lord? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Who is the man of integrity? Who is that? Well, think about Psalm 1 and 2. I'm going to ask you a question. Think about Psalm 1 and 2. They're thematically law and gospel. 
law, and gospel. Note the end of this. Ask yourself, is this a psalm of law or gospel? Who is the man who can climb the hill to heaven? Who can dwell in the presence of God most high? The answer is found in the last verse. He who does these things shall never be moved. Who is absolutely blameless? Jesus. Jesus. That's what this psalm is saying. The one who is absolutely blameless is Jesus. Now we can get into Psalm 16. Right? We can understand Psalm 16. So this as well is a psalm of David. Now, um, you may be studying on your own and um, want to see, okay, when did these psalms take place in the life of David? Um, so um, I think this is good insight, is I don't think that that matters. Sometimes we look for the context of the psalms, like when did this take place? But we have to continue to ask ourselves, does the text, does the psalm itself tell us? If the psalm doesn't tell us, then it doesn't really matter, right? So sometimes we can look and say, well, was this, you know, before David's sin? Was this when he was running from Saul? When this, was this after the battle of, of Goliath? Was this, I don't think the chronology matters, okay? So as you study, um, I think the structure of the collection of psalms matters more. Psalm 16, let's read it together. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. For you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Here in this, in this passage this morning, we are going to see the refuge of David in a transformational way. Um, so for those of you that are taking notes, um, this passage is paralleled. We're, we're going to look at it in its two sections, but you can see that the beginning verse, verse 1, matches with verse 11. Um, it's a typical structure in the Psalms in that the point is actually in the middle. We're not used to that as Westerners. 
We, we tend to put the point in our poetry at the end. It, it comes really at the, the middle of this. Sometimes the middle is like an, an odd verse where it's the one verse that stands out. Um, we don't really have that here. What we have is we have this parallelism that's just moving towards the center and moving out in its organization. And we can see the point as we move through. So we really are, are covering two parallel subjects. So that's how we're going to, to do that this morning. Um, so here's, here's the two sections. What we have is four confessions uh, that lead us to contentment, verses 1 through 6. And then four reasons contentment in God's faithfulness leads us to joy. Right? So it's leading us into contentment. And then it's understanding, hence Psalm 15, understanding it's God's faithfulness that leads us to joy. Now, what, one thing that, you know, let me say this first, note takers, you know, as you get into the four confessions, you'll see those in the text, okay? I, I don't want to, so I'm, I'm peeling back the layers, little homiletic kind of, uh, here's what I want you, to, want you to see. I don't want to put those into my words. I want you to put those, if you're taking notes, into your words, right? So I could put four things underneath that and then four things underneath that, but I actually want you to look at the text, with me and find those things in the text with the words of the text rather than my words so okay just a little note because um, some of you will be like hey i missed one it's right there in the text right so i'll try to move through those and and show you those but they're they're right there in the text and use that to to uh, take your notes or note them even better note them just simply um in your bible all right, I forgot what I was going to next, so let's jump into it. Verse 1, four confessions that lead us to contentment. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Um, it's not a commitment here. We don't see him, him making a commitment. What do we see? A cry for help, right? A cry for help. He's saying, who is it that can ascend your holy hill, Psalm 15? And here, the opening of this psalm is not a commitment, it's a, pro, uh, a cry for help. Preserve me, for in you, for in your Holy One, I take refuge. Now I remembered what I was going to say. Note the flow of emotions, right? This is just wrought with all kinds of emotion. But notice how truth drives emotion here. It is truth driven emotion. That is healthy. God's given us all kinds of emotions, but our emotions, as well as our thinking, as well as our bodies, right? They all have a destination, um, which is the grave, and we have a hope, which is in resurrection. We see that in the text here. But just know that your emotions, as well as your thinking, my thinking, is not trustworthy, right? We need the guidance of the Word of God, right? So be careful that we don't elevate our emotions um, as the... Um, as the infallible word inside of our spirit. Our emotions are deeply fallible. But when they're driven by God's truth, right? When they're driven by God's truth, they become incredibly healthy. Right? So we have, we live in a world that has emotions upside down. And it's very emotionally driven in our world. But it's not driven by truth and by God's truth. So here we have um, this humbling truth. 
You know, we tend to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, but what, what David is saying here is that we are not self-sufficient. Rather, he says, preserve me, and he uses this word, preserve me, because he takes refuge in God. Um, the word refuge communicates pres- preservation through trouble, through difficulty. Um, you know, so we think about the life of David, and, and he had many times of, of difficulty. Um, he, he fled from King Saul. Um, he, he had encounters with the enemy. He had all kinds of difficulty. Did he trust in his own ability? We know that he was skilled with sword and spear and sling. Did he trust in his mighty army? Well, there, there were times that, that, yes, he did trust in those things. We know that from his life, but he's saying here, God, what I need to trust in. Where is my ultimate refuge? Is ultimately in you. I'm trusting in you. Only you can deliver me. Body and soul. Only you. Nothing else. You are the refuge. We, the word refuge uh, reminds us of what we heard at the conclusion, the end of Psalm 2. Right? Psalm 2 says to what? To everyone, all people, Kings, rulers of this world, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so it's with this blessing, this declaration, um, that we're sent on our way to consider all the other psalms. Blessed are all who take refuge in the son, the Lord's anointed, that is Jesus. The, the word refuge occurs all through the Psalms. It would be good for you to write that down and, and then to do some kind of word study together um, and study those words of rest and refuge. And you will find them throughout all of the Psalms. They are deep emotional words. And you want to get to that place of peace in your life. It would be good for you to dig deep and meditate often on the Psalms, looking for those places of peace. We sang, you know, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Why? Because that's a place of deep rest, a place of deep peace. Psalm 57.1 says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Christian, friend, there is only one place of true peace and refuge, and that is in Jesus. There is no other place. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What a marvelous declaration this is. So I ask you, have you run to the Lord? Have you run to the Savior for refuge? Is your security in him, his strength, his stronghold? Or are you placing your hope in something else? At this initial plea for help, verses 2 through 6 consist of these particular confessions. Verse 2 says this, the first confession, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
So refuge is the overarching theme, and then you have these four confessions. The first is, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord, notice in your text, Bible students, it says, I say to you, you are my Lord. How is that spelled? All capitals. I say to you, the Lord, you are my, how is that spelled? Capital O, lowercase. What is he saying? He's saying here that you are my Lord, that you have supreme power. You are the I am. You're the Yahweh. You're the God over all other gods. And in you, you are my Adonai, the one who cares for me. You're the one who is the God of of great care. The scripture is clear that for one to be saved, they have to be saved by Jesus, who is Lord, who is Lord over all. Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament. He says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you wish to have Jesus as your Savior, you must have him as Lord over all. Jesus is saying here, the claims of Jesus himself through the word of God is saying, you can't add Jesus to your life. He's not an addendum. He's not a tack on. But rather you have to have him as Lord over all. Over everything. So I ask you, is this Lord your Lord? Have you bowed your knee before God, before his anointed one? He says, you are my Lord. That's David's leading confession. He says, apart from you, I have nothing good. That's an amazing statement. I have nothing good. Good. Now, he's not a Gnostic. He's not saying, God, you're spiritual and all your creation is bad. What he's saying is, if I don't have you, then I have nothing else. If I don't have you as what? Lord over all, nothing else matters. Consider that confession. I have no good apart from you. David's Lord, now remember back to Psalm 1, David's Lord is also what? His delight. What he's saying here is that he's confessing that his delight is in God. His delight is in God. Is this how it is for you? I hope Jesus is your Lord. I hope you have bowed knee before him. I hope that you serve him faithfully. I hope that you also love him, knowing that he has set his love upon you. You know, David, King David, a man of great power and wealth, spoke to the Lord saying, I have no good apart from you. You are my greatest good. You're my refuge. Next, verse 3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So we have the second confession here. As for the saints in the land, they are my excellent ones who are, um, in whom is all my delight. So who are the faithful? 
So those, those who are faithful, they delight in God, but what else do they delight in? People who are faithful delight in what? They delight in who? God's people. God's people. Oh, it's really tempting to say, you know, I love Jesus. I just don't like Christians. I love Jesus. I just don't care for that institutional church. The one that Jesus instituted and organized. See, it's real tempting to say those kinds of things. Here, what David says is, those that are faithful delight in God, but they also delight in God's people. But who are the saints? Who are the saints in this passage? As the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. The saints are those who delight in God and have believed on the Son. The saints are the ones who as well are delighting in God. And so David looked out on his kingdom and he saw what? Saints and sinners. And David saw the godly and the ungodly. And he considered saints to be excellent ones. He delighted in them. He cherished their companionship. And you say, well, you know, who are the saints today? When we don't know who the saints are, we can't look into people's hearts and lives. Um, we don't know. I look over the, the congregation from the pulpit this morning, and I, I can't pick out and say, oh, these are the people that are saints, and these are the ones that are called. We give a profession of faith, but we know that the Bible says that there are those who will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. So how do we delight in those that are truly saints? I think there's one test that we have here in this passage. It's very clear. It's those that delight in the word. It's those that go to the word. You see, you will find friends, true friends in this life if they delight in God's word, if they go to God's word, if they ask you and they ask of themselves, what does the text say? Why? Because what does verse 11 say? You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, friends, make your companions, those that are close to you, those that are a part of the church that delight in the saints as well, and you will not go wrong. You will meet lots of imperfect people, but find the people that delight in God's word. These are not teammates or drinking mates or workmates or the friend down the block or high school or college buddies there there's room for some of those things and those have their place but that's not what the text is getting at right who is david surrounding himself by he's surrounding himself by companions in the word you know maybe we would say we saw it up on the word partners Word friends, right? There's wisdom in that. And we, you need to ask yourself, not only, you might say, well, I delight in God. Well, who are your friends? Who are those that are closest to you? 
Who are those soulmates that know you well? Do they know God's word well? And will they take you to scripture? Those need to be your closest companions on the path that leads to life. Right? There's some wisdom here for us. Delight in God and find those that delight in him and make those individuals your closest companions in the journey. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. This is the opposite of the saints in the land who are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So it's a, um, it's a contrast to those um, who delight in gods, the, uh, those that, d- that delight in other things, those that have something other than God as their highest God. I don't care what they claim to be. They might claim to be a Christian, but if their lives are running after other gods, then here David says, what? I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. I will not do that thing. The third declaration we see in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Just as the word of refuge, just as the word refuge was to remind us of Psalm 1, this statement reminds us of Psalm 2, this statement reminds us of Psalm 1, which says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. David here is declaring that he has taken the right path. He's taken the right path because he's delighting in God, he's delighting in the saints, and he has surrounded himself not by those who walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. You see, the wicked might prosper for a time, but David knows their end, and their end is destruction, and he is determined not to walk among them, but rather his delight is in the Lord and in the Lord's people, and he will not associate with wicked men or women in their wickedness. Do you see the connection between the first declaration, the second, and the third? David claimed to delight in God above all else. I have no good apart from you. Because David's God is above all else, he loves to assemble and associate with God's people, and he refuses to associate with the wicked in their wickedness. His heart is not with them. And to put it directly, if we truly want to delight in God, then we should delight in God's people, refuse to associate with the wicked in whatever form it takes. Verses 5 and 6, we see the fourth confession. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is the fourth confession. He, he's not saying his condition is fantastic. What he's saying is, I have an inheritance. God is my refuge And I have something that is long-awaited. But note here, he is saying he has something now. Right? He's not pointing to his circumstance, as we often do. He's not saying, well, you know, today is just, 
I'm just making it through today, you know, I'm standing up, I'm above the dirt, that's great, you know. And and someday I'm going to be with the Lord. That's not his attitude. If that's your attitude, like, hey, I'm just kind of timing out here, I'm waiting for that day. That's not David's attitude. He says, I have an inheritance awaiting for me and I have a portion even now. I've got something now and it's in the Lord. Did you hear this? David didn't say I only have something, but rather the Lord is my portion and my cup. It's the Lord that's sustaining me. It reminds us of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I have, I count it as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith. What did Paul and David consider to be of surpassing worth? Christ above all. They wanted to be found in Christ. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The Lord is my portion in my cup. I found that many people struggle with discontentment. In fact, I think it's a major struggle of our day. It's a root problem. It's the struggle to keep the 10th commandment, and a lot of things in our culture just exacerbate this. The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. You know, it's easy to fixate on what you do not have, and what you wish you had, or where you wish you would be, or what your family looks like, or who your spouse is, or isn't or who they might be or you you have or not have one or um, they left this life sooner than you thought that they should or whatever it may be but God's calling us David's declaring all of this because it's moving towards a particular place and it is contentment and not complacency you see envy ends up in desperation but contentment in Jesus ends up in joy as we see in this passage To be content is to be satisfied and at peace concerning God's will and God's place for you and your life. You're in your place right now by God's design. It's not a mistake. You can look at the past circumstances of this week, however difficult and however deep, and you can say, I still can find my delight in God. This is my place. This is my lot. And you can say, God has drawn the lines of my lot in fair places. Right? You might not feel like that. (laughs) You might not feel like that. But God wants to transform your feelings. Right? Because your feelings, looking out at where you think you should be and where you are, will only deceive you. And what the word of God is opening your eyes to the reality that God is the source of all goodness. And if you are in Jesus, you have nothing to fear. And teenagers, young people, don't forget this. Life is full of all kinds of incredible experiences.
that you might get to the other side and say, is there more? Isn't there something more? Or, or maybe you, you feel like you, you might live your life and you feel like you got gypped. Man, I, I drew the short straw when it came to lives being handed out. Oh, the reality that we have that David gives us. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, God is my portion. That's how he can say, God is my refuge. It is now, and it is even greater in the world to come. So now he gives, he turns, and he says, look, look at how the, look at how delighting in God and in God's people leads us to, into contentment. Did you ever think that? That if we were instructed to delight in God, in God's people, we could be most satisfied, most content, rather than irritable and fussy and discontent and grousing around, raging at God, but rather God gives us contentment. Now, contentment, you can feel the emotion in that word, but God just doesn't leave us in this like, ah, contentment. Oh, he's not satisfied to leave you there. That's good, right? We love contentment. That's a good place. Amen? Come on now. Amen. God wants to lead you into contentment, but he's not going to leave you there in contentment. It doesn't matter. The storm can rage around you, and you can sleep. Someone else did that that I know of. Even while others fussed. But he's not going to leave you in contentment. Look at where he takes us. Four reasons that contentment and God's faithfulness leads us to joy. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. So this corresponds with the declaration in verse Two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. See, the Lord is the source of all wisdom. He blesses the Lord because the Lord gives him counsel. He gives him wisdom. And for David, the Lord is his counselor. That's the best counselor. That's the best counselor. Verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And so in verse 8, we see that David has set before him the Lord. Um, we see this relates to verse 3 where he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. He says, I have set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. Do you see the connection between those verses? Both verses have to do with companionship and association. David is delighted in the saints of God. He surrounds himself with the faithful ones, but he did this because he desires to have God himself at his right hand. There is a connection with companionship and fellowship and God. Though it's true that David delighted in the saints, and it's true that he associated with them, trust ultimately was in God. It was because the Lord was always with him and before him. It's because the Lord was always at his right hand. David was not shaken, but this was manifest through companionship in the saints in the Lord. The two go hand in hand.
It's interesting when studying um, family theory and how families relate, actually how um, psychopathology can actually be passed on from generation to generation. Um, how there are certain things that relate, certain things that relate to um, your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents, and there's a dynamic in your family. There's a dynamic in your family. And there is a truism that when someone feels anxious, they tend to depend upon another person. Um, but that is not enough. They will tend to triangulate um, and because one person cannot simply hold that anxiety. And so anxiety actually is passed from one to another. And so when someone has this kind of anxiety, they will pass it along. And so there are these maps that you can draw of families, and you can see how problems and anxieties actually move through multiple generations. But there's also another interesting phenomenon. Um, Murray Bowen studied these things from the 50s all the way um, through the 1980s um, and mapped families, thousands of them, all across the, the, the globe, um, made these genograms, family maps. And one thing that, that he observed, in fact, it became one of his principles, was the cutoff, was the cutoff. He said of this, and the cutoff is when anxiety between this triad, through this triangle, when, it, when an individual does not have emotional maturity enough to, when, when there's this anxiety that's moving through a family structure, and there isn't someone that has the emotional perception and maturity to differentiate and say, wait a minute, what's really going on here? That oftentimes the anxiety builds up and what happens is one of the individuals like cuts themselves off from this family member. Now there's something interesting that, that's happening here in, in, in Murray Bowen's observation. He said, America, of all the genograms, the thousands of thousands of the institute at Georgetown University that mapped these over decades and decades, he said, in the United States of America, we have more cut off family relationships in that it is epidemic. In other words, family members who don't associate with other family members because of the, a struggle, certain anxiety, they simply just disassociate with them. They cut them off. Right? What David, now let me bring you back to the text. What David is saying is that there is wisdom from God. God's the one who is wise. Right? God's the one who is wise. And, and there's emotion in this text. Like, this text affects how we feel. It deals with our anxiety. And when we have struggles and pain and difficulty, what is God doing to our emotions? He's helping us take a step back into the refuge of God and allow us to say, what does this look like? How does God see this? And what do I need to do and be and become? And how should I feel? Class, how should you feel regardless of your circumstances if God is your portion and your delight?
joyful, right? Joyful. It's not something that's manufactured. It's something that's discovered in God. But look, see, some of you lack joy because you just don't pick up this book and read it. You don't meditate on it. And then you wonder, where the heck am I? You're apart from God and his word. Is there a reason that in our families, we have disassociated with family members? Many times over, from other places in the world, including nations that don't have this. There's reasons for that. It gives us something to think about. I think what it points out is that you know, we are emotional babies being ruled by our emotions. We are being tormented because we are raging, not because we delight in God and in his truth. Verse 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad my whole being rejoices. Here's the hope. My flesh also dwells secure. Woo, I love that verse. Right? Yeah. Amen. You know, see, here's the thing. Like, if we just get the good news, if we just pick this verse, I'm going to pick this verse. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. But we forget that this came out of deep, pain in that we went to our refuge it drove us to our only refuge that is god we miss the point and some of us we don't like what god's word says about the fact that this world is fallen evil and sinful and god is the judge right how can david say that his heart is glad well because god is the judge Right? Don't miss that. God is the judge of the universe. Sometimes we say, oh, that's all bad. We don't want that bad news. Give us the good news. You can't get the good news without the bad news. The good news is that if you're in Jesus, the judge is coming and you're secure. Get in Jesus. Rest in him. He's your refuge. Only then can you say, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This parallels verse 4. In contrast, the sorrows who run after another God shall do what? Multiply. Multiply. In contrast, David and all who are faithful to him have hearts that are glad. They rejoice. They don't fear destruction of their flesh. Why? Verse 10. We get a little hell in this passage. For you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol or hell. Or let your Holy One see corruption. That's the answer. I'll never go to hell. Why? Because the Holy One says, never let the Holy One see corruption. This is, see this connection. This is the passage. This is the text of Acts chapter 2. Class, what was preached in Acts chapter 2? Who is the preacher? Come on, somebody. Peter, what day was it? Pentecost. This is the day of Pentecost. And Acts chapter, um, Psalm 16 is the text of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And what was he talking about on the day of Pentecost? Jesus is risen. The one that you put to death 
Well, there's an irony in here. The one that you put to death did see hell in a sense, right? He does see hell. He sees hell for you. He sees hell for me that are in Jesus. He took hell on himself, but his body didn't see corruption. Yes, he went to the grave. Yes, he died, but he rose again. Psalm 16 is a psalm that is a prophetic psalm predicting not just of David. Will David rise again? Yes, David will rise again. But who is the holy one? Who's the anointed one? This is David's son. This is Messiah. See, his hope is in the one that will not abandon. Verse 10 is extremely important. The Lord is our refuge alone because he's the only one that can preserve in life and through death. Verse 10 explains why David's heart was glad and his whole being rejoices because in verse 10, he knew that God would not abandon his soul to hell. Why did David say in verse 9, my, my flesh dwells secure? Because he's, his security in life and in death is in Jesus, Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And then verse 11 You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you see how the end returns to the beginning here? What does verse 1 say of Psalm 16? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Where do we take refuge? The place where there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's good for us this morning to think about trials, to think about death, to think about the separation of the soul, to think about difficulty. Why? Because we ask, what is this about? What's life about? And what do I need? What do I ultimately need to be saved from this? The answer is, that in this life, we need to turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And every day of your life, you will run to him for refuge. Is that not good news? This means no matter what happens to you, no matter what people say, no matter what, God is your refuge. Right? And he wants to give you two things in Jesus. You can't get these things apart from Jesus. He wants to give you great contentment and surpassing joy as you delight in him. Let's run to Jesus today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage, for this text. We thank you that you are the Lord over our mind and our emotions and our circumstance. There's not a detail of our life that has slipped from you. And truly, you have drawn our lot, these lines, in pleasant places. 
Well, it doesn't feel like that some days, sometimes many days. But you, through David and through this psalm, have opened our eyes to see that it's true. That this world is not our home. That we truly are just passing through. Um, that this life is life in the womb. And we are waiting for the birth. The birth of life and life eternal. And in this life, you have called us to trust in you. That is the only way that we can be born again. So we acknowledge this morning that you are God and that your goodness is abundant. For you have taken care of our deepest need. So help us to trust you with every other need. And I pray as we respond in these next few moments that those that don't know you this morning would trust in you and place their faith in you and have their sins forgiven. That those who profess Jesus Christ would surrender to his lordship and find their delight in Jesus. They would make their companions Christ followers that we would be people who are content and joyful. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.